Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly roundup of the world of EBM. I'm Doug Jarvis, multimedia editor here at the BMJ, and I'm joined in the studio by Helen McDonald. Helen, can I get you to introduce yourself? I'm Helen McDonald, UK editor at the BMJ and resting GP. And we are joined on the phone by Carl Hennigan, who is currently in quarantine in Oxford. Carl, can I get you to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm going to describe myself as an active GP because I've been working over Christmas, doing some urgent care work, and that's given me the lurgy. Thank you very much, Christmas. And I'm also Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. Well, I hope you get better soon, and I'm sure everyone listening does as well. Maybe it'll keep him a little bit more quiet this week, Helen. I'll try. We can <laughs> we can mute him more easily. Yeah, we can. Um, saying that, we are about to go straight over to Carl to do our first start and stop. Carl, you've been looking at um, corticosteroids for treating sepsis in children and adults. Yeah, no, that was interesting. There's a Cochrane Review update that was first published in 2004 and last updated in 2015 that examined the effects of corticosteroids on death in children and adults with sepsis. And what's interesting about this update is it included 61 trials and the new search revealed 25 additional trials. So this is quite some update and so obviously this is an area of interest. And what's interesting about this update, what it found evidence for was a was a indicates that steroids reduce 28-day and hospital mortality among patients with sepsis. And they resulted in particularly in large reductions in intensive care unit stays and hospital length of stay. And I think, you know, this is a really interesting issue because the paper itself says amongst clinicians and surveys shows that in sepsis, as opposed to septic shock, Many clinicians don't use steroids, and also in many guidelines, and I checked the NICE guidelines as well, that were last updated in 2017, that they don't include steroids as actual a treatment for sepsis. And my point is, and I think, and I think this is interesting, is how do we then translate this evidence into clinical practice and into guidelines, as opposed to now have to wait two or three years to implement this sort of intervention. So you think it's uh, it's strong enough to to potentially start doing that already, the evidence? Well, I think, look, it, it has a number of strengths in the outcomes. I think first is there are, there are not just one or two trials. There are, like I said, 61 trials, uh, including 12, over 12,000 participants. And what it did is it it's, it reduced 28-day mortality, not by much, but enough to make it of, of importance. Among 1,000 patients, about 24 more will be alive at 28 days. But particularly, it reduced the length of intensive care unit stay by a day and large reductions in length of hospital stay over a day of the mean difference. And one of the most crucial things about this is that what you worry about steroids is, do they actually increase your risk of what they call superinfection? And there was no increase in the risk of such infections because what people worry about steroids is they have a, an effect on your immune system, so you're more likely to get an infection. The answer is no, and that was backed up by 25 studies and moderate certainty evidence. So we should wait to hear from our emergency care and acute care colleagues about whether 
they're convinced by Carl's find. Absolutely. And uh, as you said there, Carl, you know, these are the kind of things that we need to get into practice. And that's exactly what our next article, Helen, is all about. Yes, what you really need, Carl, is to commission a rapid recommendation. (laughs) On the steroids? Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think this is an important point because our structures at the moment are sort of set up to move very slow. But what we see is a move from the systematic review community into these living reviews to make them more up-to-date and more relevant. And I think we need a policy sort of living approach, particularly for these important questions that go, here's a rapid recommendation into a policy that changes practice. Well, shall I give you an example of a rapid recommendation? Yeah, I do. Our latest uh, rapid recommendation hopefully offers you better evidence to hone prescribing of prophylactic proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, or histamine 2 receptor antagonists, H2RAs, in patients who are in the intensive care unit. And I thought this one was a good one to talk about. As Carl said, this one also responded to some emerging evidence, but also is an example of how medicine um, can be increasingly personalised to to hone your offer to the people who are most likely to benefit. Mm. So what was that emerging evidence? So the background is about one in 20 people on ITU have a clinically important GI bleed, often as a result of a stress ulcer. And in 2018, there was a trial that was published which suggested that prophylactic drugs didn't make a very meaningful difference to outcomes. And there was even a suggestion in that study that there could be harms of these medications, in particular clostrum difficile infection and pneumonia. Uh, But that was quite uncertain because the number of people with those outcomes was quite low. So in this rapid recommendation, the team behind it were trying to answer on balance, should these drugs be used in this situation for all people in intensive care or for specific groups of people in intensive care? And if so, which drugs should be used? Should it be the PPI group or, or different ones? So to try and solve this, they did a systematic review and network meta-analysis and worked with patients and clinicians with experience of this condition to to try and come up with some evidence and to contextualise that for practice. And what they found was there was data on around 12,000 critically ill patients in this systematic review from around 72 trials uh, that looked at both of the types of um, medications. And they found that there was a reduction in clinically important bleeding and that that benefit was higher amongst those at higher risk of bleeding. So in particular, patients with coagulopathy or chronic liver disease or people who were receiving mechanical ventilation but not having enteral nutrition, people with acute kidney injury, sepsis, shock, some of these conditions. They also found that the drugs might increase the risk of pneumonia. But even once they collected together all of the data that was out there, the quality of evidence was still quite low on that uh, outcome. They found that there probably wasn't a difference on actual death, but the reduction was there for bleeding. And they found that PPIs were probably better than the H2RA um, agonists. So the panel suggests that you use this particular tool to calculate the patient's risk of bleeding. And in people who have more than a 4% risk of bleeding during their stay, um, to to use this treatment, it's a weak recommendation. So there's still some some room to personalise that and think about whether it's worth it in that particular person's case. And that suggests that around 23 per thousand fewer people will have a bleed if they have the drug. But with that comes the harm that around 50 more of those people uh, per thousand will have pneumonia. 
And overall, the authors suggest that there's still some work to do in this area, um, particularly around better characterising the, the absolute risk of um, C. diff infection and pneumonia in that group. Interesting. I felt there were two really neat things about this. One is I want to just raise the importance of clinicians and using your experience and expertise and submitting responses because there's a response that says, although this is high-risk patients, that those with liver disease, you should treat this issue with caution because they, although patients with chronic liver disease are at risk of peptic and stress ulcers, portal hypertension is responsible for about 70% of the GI bleeds, and this will not be affected by PPI. So there was a sort of caveat in the responses that I think is worth reading, which I think is that there is a dilemma when you're doing these rapid recommendations. There will always be a notion that people with expertise and experience will come in and say, hey, there's other bits of evidence that inform the issues. And I think it's our responsibility to respond. I think that's what we should do more of. I thought that was interesting. But also, um, tell me about this. There's the, the I mean, I'm very wary of downloading things these days onto my phone. But it says uh, you can download the magic app. What's that all about? And should we do that as clinicians? And will it help us? Ah, so BMJ rapid recommendations are produced in conjunction uh, with the Magic organisation, uh, and they they um, are a not-for-profit group who have the Magic app. And if you go to the Magic app, what you'll find is a lot more detail than we can store on BMJ.com. So you'll find all of the outcomes listed there. You'll also find the ability to click on the outcomes and to present it in a in a patient decision aid. That may be less helpful in this situation because people who are very sick in ITU are probably not in a position um, or may not be in a position to look at that information with their clinician. But that's one chunk of information there that's the shared decision aids. The other thing is that if you wanted to take this and work out what you should do in your organisation, the way that the data is structured on the Magic app means that you can download and sort of localise that information. There are ways that you can make it flow into your electronic healthcare record and do all kinds of clever things that I don't fully understand. But if you are an organisation out there interested in using the information, you should uh, definitely get in touch. Absolutely. Great. Well, so there we go. That is a nice, simple, relatively <laughs> simple uh, thing to, to start doing. Um, the next one, Carl, I was slightly surprised when you put this on the list, but it is interesting. Um, the association of powder use in the genital area with risk of ovarian cancer. Yeah, so look, um, last week in JAMA, there was a publication that hit the media, widespread media, about the risk of ovarian cancer with the use of talcum powder. And the paper used data from four cohorts of about 250,000 women, and they reported that there was no statistically significant association between the use of talcum powder in the genital area and ovarian cancer. And what happened then, which is interesting to me, is the media reporting picked that up and the way it's reported is really interesting. Big study finds no strong sign linking baby powder and cancer, reports the Washington Times. The truth about talcum powder and cancer, the Telegraph, and over 120 news outlets ran the story, which basically their main was there's no link between talc and ovarian cancer. And you think that might be untrue? 
Well, what's interesting about this is, first to say, there's in the background, why this is important. Talcum powder is, in particularly in America, was mined in the same places where they've mined asbestos, and you get micro deposits in talcum powder. They tried to have some voluntary removal of that in the 70s, but globally, there's still this issue about micro deposits of asbestos in talcum powder, and there's been many lawsuits and issues and controversies over talc and cancer. So there are quite a lot of studies. But the thing that was interesting to me about this was taking this and looking at, at the, what the evidence is out there. And, and what you find is that actually if you produce a, a review or a paper and it hits the media, you can always find out there there's other studies that can help you understand the evidence. And there's previous systematic reviews in 2016, there was a systematic review that said there's a third increased risk in ovarian cancer with the use of talc. So it's completely opposite, in effect. And so one of the things, when you look at that evidence, and, and, and not to say it's even more confusing, because if you look at that 2016 review, uh, some of the studies included that were the same studies that are included in this 2020 study, which people don't know, observational study, that was used for like hormone replacement therapy, and HRT, where it came to a directly opposite conclusion to some of the trials. But the idea being is, I think that what's happening here, we are confusing the, pub the public uh, significantly by producing single studies that get picked up. They have significant altmetric scores, the news loves them, but nobody then places them in the context of pre-existing evidence. So how do you think it plays out? In yeah, well, one of the things I say first is to say it's very difficult when outcomes are rare for harms the quality of the evidence is always moderate because um, largely these studies were never set up to address that specific question. So most of this is coming after the effect. So there's recall bias, reporting bias, missing data, issues with, this, with the studies. And what you find is people say statements like there's no definitive evidence that tout causes cancer. Well, the definitive evidence will only ever come post, uh, at post-mortem when you can have pathological proof. Therefore, one of the things that I do is think of this in the context of the law. And the law thinks about it on the basis of balance of probabilities. And if you think about it in a balance of probability approach, you say, based on the best available evidence, is the occurrence of the event more likely than not? And to do that, you need all of the evidence, not just a single bit of evidence. And so you end up cherry-picking if you're not careful, and the media's loving it. But my problem is, at the end of the day, is the public is utterly confused and I think thoroughly hacked off with our approach to reporting this type of evidence in a sensationalist way. And what we need to do is, when we report harms, is have a statement to say, how does this fit in with pre-existing evidence? Now, if it's similar and it's in line on a balance of probabilities, you're more likely to go, OK, this makes sense and I'm going to go with this as not causing cancer. But if it's completely at odds, then you have a different issue and you can't have this conclusion saying it does not cause cancer. Mm. It almost became a bit of a rant there, didn't it, really? It's inevitable. Um, I had a question about this, which was, you know, they narrowed this down to using powder in the genital area, presumably because... Um, there's an association now with with ovaries, but uh, you know, is that what would the mechanism of action here be, and why discount powder used elsewhere under your arms? Yeah, well, just to say, it's also been implicated in uh, mesothelioma, 
So I think it's the direct travel into the body. So in same, so in the lungs, you can in, inhale it, and within the genital tract, has it got a passage that can go up and up, travel up towards your ovaries? And because you only need a micro deposit of asbestos, and if it's there for 20, 30 years, you set off an inflammatory approach. But I think it's been quite an interesting issue, Tao, because it, it is, if you go back in the literature, it's been there as an issue for 50, 60 years. There's some really interesting stuff about it. We used to put talc on surgical gloves. And that was banned as a practice because people said it's setting off inflammatory reactions at the time of surgery. So there's really interesting issues. In fact, they even used to use talc on condoms. Don't ask me why. But to be honest with you, I can remember as a kid, you two are probably too young, maybe not. We used to throw talc all sorts of over us when we went to the swimming baths. And I have no idea why. But, <laughs> but on a balance of probabilities, for me personally, talc doesn't do much for me now. And looking at the evidence, there's still some uncertainties and it's slightly leading to more likely to cause cancer than not, if particularly if it's got micro deposits of asbestos. And if this stuff does have that, that should be banned around the world. OK, so there we go. We have a bumper number of start and stop for you this time. So that's starting... Starting, starting steroids. Yeah, corticosteroids for treating sepsis in children and adults. Uh Potentially, if the risk of uh, GIV is high enough, starting prophylaxis for that. And uh, perhaps stop freaking out about uh, talcum powder. Or just don't use it. Help the environment as well. Maybe. There we go. So I've got something I wanted to talk about this week. I think it's something of an EBM bombshell, actually. So, (laughs) Carl, brace yourself. There are two papers recently published on BMJ, one research paper and one analysis paper, which I found very intriguing. And I'm going to hone my inner sensationism to say that, in effect, we appear to have published a study that says that blinding doesn't really matter in trials. That's not quite true. But I guess the that's headline now I've retracted it. Um, but so blinding is the idea that um, if participants and uh, those caring for them and assessing their outcomes, if they don't know which treatment arm they're in in trials, that's a good thing. It reduces bias and sort of evens out expectations and placebo and placebo effects. And it's the gold standard. And everyone knows that it's always a good thing. And maybe we should have heeded that always word because that's always a false friend, isn't it, when it comes up in exams. So the authors of the analysis paper, which are sort of discussing the issues around this, are making the case that the illustrious reputation of blinding, they describe it, uh, may not be justified. And they have this rather glorious story about mesmerism, um, which they think describes... um, the first case of blinding in a trial. And I was going to ask Duncan to read it to you because we all know that his voice is very relaxing uh, and delightful and it will mesmerise you into believing that blinding works. So you have to transport yourself to Paris in the year 1884 for Duncan to tell you about it. 1784. 1784, sorry. So, okay, now it's time for story time. Get comfortable, everyone. The first recorded instance of blinding is from Paris in 1784. This was a study into an unknown mystical force called mesmerism, for which dramatic claims had been made for the healing of patients who encountered a so-called mesmerizer, or an object that had been mesmerized. 
People believed that mesmerism. People believed to have been mesmerized would sometimes show hysterical behavior, but the French Academy of Sciences were skeptical. They assembled a distinguished scientific team, including Antoine Lavoisier and Benjamin Franklin, to conduct experiments to test for mesmerism. The patients were blinded to which objects had been mesmerized or whether a mesmerizer was behind a curtain, and then observed for their reactions. When they were blinded, mesmerism lost its power, and instead of the power of blinding. When they were blinded, mesmerism lost its power, and instead the power of blinding was established. I hope you enjoyed that. I did. I enjoyed <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so coming back to this paper, in essence, it says there are some logistical and practical reasons why blinding might be tricky. Sometimes it can compromise patient safety. It's quite hard to measure. And we might dismiss valuable information if we place a really high value on blinded trials and dismiss the findings of studies which which may be less blinded. So maybe, Carl, you've been quiet for so long, I feel that maybe it's time for a little New Year's test. As our professor of evidence-based medicine, uh, you should list for us some reasons why blinding may not be a good thing. Okay. Um, the first thing is you may actually alter the intervention, which is makes it not realistic in clinical practice. How do you mean? Well, for instance, certain non-drug interventions... If you try and blind the participant or the healthcare practitioner to actually the intervention, then you'll have a problem. And I'll give you a good example, self-monitoring of oral anticoagulation. You know, you need to know what the INR result is. You need to know what the test result is. So if you, and you need to feed that back to the patient. So that becomes a problem if you say we can't feed this back to the patient because you're changing what you do in the actual real world. Uh, second is uh, recruitment to trials because often if you go to patients and I've seen this happen you go we've got these two drugs but we're not going to tell you what's going on and which one's the best one and patients go well I really like to know what I'm on and what I'm taking and so that actually has an issue with recruitment to the trials and feasibility so I think there to me are the first two and then third is sometimes it's just not possible to blind people to what's going on within the intervention. And I'll give you examples. The drugs might have specific side effects. And once you get them side effects, you know what's happening. And if you give a placebo that's inert and doesn't have the side effects, and people can guess anyhow what's going on. How's that for a list? I think that's quite good. There's a few things you missed as future professor of evidence-based medicine. I'm, I'll <laughs> fill you in on those details, courtesy of the authors of the paper. So you're on the right track. There was a couple more things. For okay. example, if people start to believe that they're not getting the active treatment, that might bias the way that they report particularly self-reported outcomes. And that could work either way, I guess, whether they thought yeah. they were on the treatment or not. The other thing is that increasingly patients are quite curious and empowered to try and work out which group they are in. And in, in the kind of digital age that we're in, there are examples of patients coming together and kind of pooling their outcomes and sharing their results and effectively unblinding the study uh, themselves. Which then obviously affects 
retention. If yes, well, it may do. Yeah. There is also some interesting information about the assessors as well, that assessors can become unblinded, particularly, for example, if there's a medical emergency, um, perhaps a serious potential adverse outcome, and, and you have to find out whether the patient was on the active treatment or the placebo. And the fact that that experience and knowing what that adverse outcome was might influence the way that that assessor um, deals with other uh, people in the trial. I think the other interesting thing was on this issue of um, the kind of intention, sort of writing about your intention to do a blinded study versus actually being able to say that it was convincingly blinded. And it felt like um, reading between the lines of the paper, there are some methodological difficulties and trickiness around assessing how successful blinding actually has been. And the authors of this say that only about... um, 2% of trials actually report on the success of blinding. And in part, um, that may be because CONSORT, which is the reporting statement for randomised control trials, doesn't um, suggest that you need to do this. But nonetheless, I wonder if it is because it's quite a difficult difficult issue. Anyhow, just for for EBM nerds out there, uh, there is something that might be of interest to people. There was a paper some way back in the BMJ about the Zellen design. What's the Zellen? Ah, yeah, you see, you're now on your way to... I think you're showing off, Carl. (laughs) Um, It's it's basically to account for this idea of patient preference in the the designer trials. And what Zellen design does is randomise people before consent to actually see what they will actually do when they get assigned to the treatment or not. And it tries to account for what would be the impact on patient preference. And some people have said, well, it's unethical to do that. But they're often a, a problem is, is you go into a trial, you get consented, and then people randomise, particularly in surgery, say you're, gonna get, you're not going to get the surgery, and then they withdraw. And you have a super, you have a big problem then in the in balancing the arms. So what Zellen does, and there's a paper back in the BMJ '98 is randomised you before consent to see what will actually happen. Interesting issue. So we've put, I suppose, a lot of confusion in everyone's minds now, but this paper does go on to give us some (laughs) potential solutions. And I guess it gives you a reminder that on one hand you want an unbiased study, but on the other hand you're also trying to get information that actually helps you make decisions in the real world for real patients. And sort of describes that the treatment effect from blinded studies can be quite different to real world settings where things like the placebo effect in a way are relevant and perhaps useful and part of what you want to see. So they suggest thinking of trials as a kind of continuum where perhaps the closer you get to big pragmatic trials, perhaps the more acceptable unblinding is likely to be and talk about whether... um, there should be a stronger emphasis on the assessors of the outcomes being blinded rather than sort of everybody um, being blinded. They also come up with a nice or, or showcase a nice series of questions that you might ask as you're designing uh, your study, which include, is blinding needed for a scientifically sound result, i.e. will there be a placebo effect of your intervention and do you think it's important to separate it out? How likely is it that patients and or clinicians will behave differently if they know what the intervention is and how might that bias the result? How harmful might blinding be to patients and is that harm excessive? And finally, this point, which I thought was quite interesting, I'd never thought of this before, was does the financial cost 
of actually achieving blinding compromise spending on other methodological aspects of the trial's integrity. What do you think of those, Carl? Yeah, so, uh, look, I think this is a really interesting issue. So there are, there are a couple of things that come to, to mind. Is there was a paper by Johnny Inardis that said you can overcome small effects with any introduction of bias. So one of the most important aspects about any trial outcome is the size of effect matters. So if the, the effect is tiny, you really worry about any introduction of bias. The second issue that what comes with bias is we, we're sort of railing now against this sort of formulaic approach which we've introduced over the last 15, 20 years where the quality of studies comes down to three or four measures and if you've got them all, you're high quality and, the, and if they're not there, you're low quality. And I think um, bias is just a much more interesting issue and subject and it, it's not been studied as much as some of the other issues like the analytical aspects of trials because I think it's a very interesting widespread issue and it's much more than just blinding. And I'll give you an example. We've just uh, been publishing our catalogue of bias and we've got about 65 biases on there already. And I think when you look at a trial, it's about the overall assessment of all the biases that are contained. And blinding sometimes is incredibly important. And I'll give you one of the examples, for instance, was the trials of knee arthroscopy, where they used a sham procedure. So they actually put the, the patients in the control group to sleep, give them a little nick, and said, you've had an operation similar to the intervention group. And that showed no difference. The trials with the absence of that actually did show there was a difference in the intervention group with the surgery. Whereas sometimes I think, um, particularly non-drug interventions, it doesn't matter. And I suspect in certain times in drug interventions, you can be using a pragmatic design where you're trying to match what actually happens in clinical practice. It's important to see blinding in the context of all the the biases. So I think what we're saying is that when you're writing up your trial, or what I guess I would like to see as an editor thinking about this issue more, is you just want to see a thoughtful discussion of the kind of biases that might have come in and for the decisions that you've made about who has been blinded or who hasn't to make clear why you made those choices. Yeah, and I think understanding biases and the implications on the effect, because really what you're saying, given this effect, do we believe it or not? To what extent is it biased by issues within the trial design or the or the population we've used or the measures we've used? And I think what's happening here is we're starting to think bias is much more complex, is really a skill in assessing it. And I totally agree. I think a section which sets out and says, to what extent is this result uncertain? would be much more useful than what we see now is, oh, the overall assessment of the quality of evidence was moderate, therefore let's move on. And it's just list the things that make it moderate. For instance, there was no blinding of the patients. Without thinking around, how does this impact on the effect? To what extent does it add to the uncertainty? It's an interesting thing here when it comes to, to the wider public understanding these things, because, I mean, that's been a big part of maybe the public's education around EBM is what blinding is, what an RCT is. And so moving away to something that is a little bit more more subtle, we're going to have to have a a more nuanced discussion um, with the public, with the press, with everyone about what this actually means. 
So I think that's a really important point, Duncan. With the public, I tend to, and it's the same with everybody, the first question of bias, I say, is this the right study to answer this question? And if you look at lots of the news headlines, often you're looking at an animal study. So immediately you're out. The second question then is we discussed in the talc is, have you got all the available evidence to, to infer this is the true effect? Have you got a systematic review or is this just an isolated study? That's number two. And then third, given you've got a clinically important outcome that will make a difference to you, within this study design, are there things that will undermine that result? So they're the three steps, if you like, to trying to understand effects. Mm. So already that's a bit more nuanced. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I'm sure, as Helen said, the little bombshell uh, that's <laughs> gone out... Our audience will have some thoughts on that. So if you do want to let us know what you think about uh, the issues around blinding, then have a look at bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out how to get in touch and potentially have your voice on the podcast. So we're on the portion of the show where we usually give over to Carl to hold forth on a subject, but as it's 2020, we've turned over new leaves for the new year. Helen, I'm going to go over to you. You have been quite annoyed about Inclizaran this week. Yes, I'm less annoyed about Inclizaran, uh, but this incredibly celebratory press release, which, which crossed my inbox this week. It came from the Department of Health, and it was a press release about their plans, I think, which were quite confused in the press release, to test a currently unlicensed drug called Inclizaban, which is part of a promising uh, group of new cholesterol-lowering drugs, PCSK9s, in a group of people with heart failure, presumably to prevent the outcome of death. And that's kind of so far so good. And also so far so good was the idea that the NHS was embedding a trial of this new drug in its care to make a, a prompt decision about whether things are worth it. But I think where it starts to unravel for me, or the way that, that this was conveyed, was it just did not seem to entertain the possibility that this drug either might not work, it might not work as well as they thought, or that it might have some harms linked to it. And I think the point of doing a trial is that you start with uncertainty or equipoise of some kind and that just did not seem to to come across here and parts of it just sort of made my made my jaw drop and there's quotes from the health secretary from the chair of NHS England from the CEO of Novartis from professors at Oxford University um Carl and um competing interest declared <laughs> and and also included this quite incredible fact they said over the past decade the pharmaceutical industry has largely stopped finding solutions for large public health issues such as diabetes cardiovascular disease and obesity due to the large costs of developing new treatments and i just increasingly found myself reading it thinking what is this and why is this being issued by our department of health and signed by so many seemingly very important people who are in sensible positions. Have you seen it, Carl? Yeah, so that's really interesting. In fact, um, um, what happened is uh, I got contacted by the media, people from Sky about this, basically asking me when it was coming out, you know, pre the releases, can I get your thoughts on this an announcement? Uh, 
Is it significant? So the first thought is to say, if you're a person who's going to get involved in the media and work with the media, these are the sorts of things which if you give responses to, they'll come back to you. So I think the first thing is to say, if you're going to be involved with the media, you're either in or you're out. And uh, I tend to think my job, part of my job is to try and help think about that. So first is I, I put, you know, the framing is if you theoretically can reduce LDL, while improving adherence, because this is a injection that you take every six months, it could benefit patients with heart disease. But what I couldn't see is, and I think what you're alluding to, and you nearly did get ranty there, is where is the clinical path benefit and the pathway to developing a robust evidence base that establishes it's superior to current cholesterol-lowering therapy, particularly for the important clinical outcomes? Because I'm aware there's been a study that's shown it's lowered LDL and that's what the claim is. And that's what it's going to go to the FDA for approval on for its approval, which is a surrogate outcome. So immediately then, that I, I did what you thought, but I thought, oh, I'll go and look. So what I did is look on clinicaltrials.gov and put the name in and said, what's going on? And there I found a 15,000 patient cardiovascular outcome trial that is run out of Oxford, competing interest from the University of Oxford, but it's set to complete in 2024. So I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. And the outcomes of that trial are the important clinical outcomes, coronary heart disease death or myocardial infarction and number of overall participants who die. So so we won't know till 2024. So why is there then a thing in the, in the press release which says NHS England will agree a population-level commercial arrangement with the company to make it widely available to patients as soon as 2021? I can't understand that myself. And it was stated 2021, and NICE will probably fast-track approve it in 2021, but we won't know the vital outcomes to 24. The news outlets that ran with this story completely missed it. And I couldn't understand. Now, one of the trialists said this is about the trial, and other people said this is about making it widely available. Matt Hancock said he's determined to find ways to save as many lives as possible. Now, Matt, if you're listening... To do that, you require an evidence-based approach that focuses on developing the research evidence that matters, as opposed to the could, maybe, and potential statements that are littered across this document that will happen in 2021 when the evidence is not there. So my understanding this drug is going to appear in 2021, but everybody's going to go, does it make a difference? Well, it lowers LDL, but we don't know about the important outcomes. Mm. For me, hearing that, it's um, part of the... the good thing about the system that we have in the UK is we have NICE who are kind of independently assessing the clinical and cost effectiveness of a drug and for then the Secretary of State for Health to be almost bypassing them or making deals that that go around them seems like a bad way to start something. Yeah no this is a really important point because if you want to and to get drugs onto the market, make them available and understand which is effective, then the NHS is going to have to combine with the National Institute of Health Research and do routine trials embedded in clinical practice. Therefore, instead of having a trial of 15,000 patients, it could say we're going to make it available in the context of routine practice in a clinical trial tomorrow, and we're going to follow it up, not just for a year or two, for life. And we're going to get on with that. 
And that would super speed up how we do trials. To do that, we need to solve some issues like data protection, some of the ethical issues. But I think that's how I would make drugs available much more speedier. And it is the people I talk to understand this stuff, think it's a no-brainer to do that. The problem is our structures within the National Health Service just aren't fit for purpose to be able to do these embedded trials in routine practice. Well, there you go. Carl's angling for another job, advisor to Matt Hancock. I don't think that will be forthcoming anytime soon. <laughs> Probably not. Well, there you go, and... Uh... We will wait to see what the outcome of that is. And perhaps in 2024, we'll be back finding out if the trial run out of Oxford actually agrees. So that's it for this month's episode of Talk Evidence. Thank you very much for listening all the way through to the end. As I said earlier, if you want to talk about anything that we've been discussing in this month's episode, then go to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out where you can find out how to get in touch. There you will also find links to all of our previous podcasts, uh, the full Talk Evidence series don't even know where I'm going with this now. The full talk evidence series, uh, in case you've missed out on any of that. So uh, we'll be back in February with more from the world of EBM. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. <laughs>